Hello, and welcome to episode one of the LCLC podcast. The first season of this podcast is devoted to compiling an oral history of the Louisville Conference on Literature and Culture, or the LCLC, a conference that began back in 1972 here at the University of Louisville and continued without interruption for 48 years until the cancellation of the 2021 conference due to the COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Matthew Biberman, and I decided to start this podcast after I was tapped to be the conference's new director in the summer of 2021. This podcast exists as my way both to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the LCLC, an event that will happen with our 2023 conference, while also learning what I need to know to ensure that the conference has continued success into the future. This week, I'll be talking to Alan Golding, the conference's prior director. Like me, Alan is a professor of English at the University of Louisville. His first monograph, From Outlaw to Classic, Canons in American Poetry, was a Choice Award winner. His latest book, Writing into the Future, New American Poetries from the Dial to the Digital, is forthcoming from the University of Alabama Press. Alan was already at the University of Louisville when I joined the faculty, and that makes him the logical first choice for me to interview as I begin my quest to learn all I can about the LCLC, its past, present, and a sense of what its future will hold. I'd like to welcome Alan to the podcast. Thank you, Matthew. Good to be here. (laughs) Alan, tell me your first memory of LCLC. How did you come to know of the conference's existence? Um, I actually learned of its existence before I moved to the University of Louisville. I was an assistant professor at the University of Mississippi, um, talking about the years 84 to 87 here. And I would see calls for papers for this conference that was then called the 20th Century Literature Conference, because we were still in the 20th century. Um, And I was intrigued because that was my... um, field of scholarly endeavor, modernism, postmodernism, with a particular emphasis on 20th century poetry. Um, But I could never quite find a way into the conference because it was thematically organized at that point. Um, So there was an annual theme, literature and religion, literature and science were a couple of things I remember. And I never felt like I had anything to say about the, the theme which I probably defined much too narrowly in my own head. Um, anyway, so bottom line, I never attended because of, um, for that reason. Uh, so I knew about it before I came here, and I was sort of aware, too, that it was one of the few things that at least people I knew associated with the university. Um, before I came here and I talked to friends about, you know, should I make this move to the University of Louisville or not? People were like, well, we know two things about the University of Louisville, the basketball team and the literature conference. <laughs> yeah. So, that... no, well, so awareness was out there, but I'd never attended um, before I actually came here in 1987. So the first conference that you actually attended would be after you moved from Alabama to the U of L. Uh, from Mississippi, yeah, oh, sorry, to U of L. So it would have been the 1988 conference the 88 conference yes yeah. um 
right. about which I can frankly remember nothing at all. <laughs> <laughs> Except that uh, I was pleased to be working on it. Um, you know, I was still in the process of making friends here, meeting all my colleagues, you know, mm-hmm. learning to work with what's my the first, colleagues. What's the first, then, earliest memory that you retain now of the LCLC? Um, let's see. Um, I mean, the first keynote speaker, for instance, that I remember um, was uh, Bill Merwin, the poet W.S. Merwin, um, was invited by our mutual old friend Tom Byers to be the keynote speaker some year, uh, one of those early years. Uh, and I brought in or you know, made the case for inviting uh, Clayton Eshelman, the poet uh, and translator, to also give an address. Um, and uh, Clayton was a um, a kind of prickly individual, <laughs> would be the best way to put it. And he seriously like wanted to get into an argument with Merwin because their poetics were very different. Um, and I suppose in a way, and I, I had known Clayton back in Los Angeles when I lived there too, so I'd seen this before. Um, but it was sort of like a reminder of, um, to put it positively, the investments that, that intellectuals and writers have in their work. Um, you know, the sense of conflict in the air I found unpleasant because I'm a kind of conflict-phobic person. Um, but, like, the energy also that that brought. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I associate the conference with a particular kind of critical and creative energy mm-hmm. and, um, and conversation mm-hmm. and back and forth. Mm-hmm. And I think that's always been one of its ongoing values, I hope, for me. Mm-hmm. So if the earliest... Uh, memories that you that you that come to mind immediately are uh, Clayton Eshelman and W.S. Merwin and what are what are some other memories that are that are back there towards that that period of the conference's existence um well, some others, and actually this is um, from the same year as uh, the, the Merwin-Eshelman encounter. Uh, Marjorie Perloff was the critical keynote speaker in one of those early years. And um, this was at a point in the history of the city of Louisville where, there, where downtown was like dead after about 9 o'clock. There was no Nulu. There were no downtown restaurants. The Brown Hotel, the kitchen closed early. So Marjorie Perloff flies in from California. She gets in at like 11, 11.30 p.m. And she wants something to eat. So the only place I could find to take her to eat, um, and Margie's a very elegant, kind of well-put-together um, even though an, an open and democratic sensibility too. And the only place that I could find to take her was the downtown White Castle at midnight. <laughs> <laughs> so we sat there um, eating whatever those 
famous little cruddy hamburgers yeah, the, that White Castle sliders. Right, sliders, yeah. Um, it was pretty cold, you know, it's a, a, a Louisville winter, so Marjorie's sitting there in her fur coat drinking her hot chocolate, eating some sliders and talking to a homeless guy in the next booth. <laughs> Um, that's more a personal memory, of course, than a conference memory. Um, another early one is seeing a manuscript page of Susan Howe's work. Um, Susan actually read from the manuscript of um, some sequences in the book Singularities before uh, it was published by Wesleyan University Press. And... It's one of her very visually striking pages, elaborately scored with numbers and arrows that indicated a sequence of reading Mm -hmm. for her. And I was fascinated by this and asked her about it um, and asked her if that represented how she meant the page to be read. Mm -hmm. And she essentially said, well, that's how I read it, but... I have no control how how other people read it. Mm-hmm. You know, I I'm not even that worried about how other people read it. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a kind of first lesson for me, a very concrete lesson in ideas about the openness of the page mm-hmm. um, and the improvisational, um, unpredictable quality that certain kinds of text can have in reading. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, I remember that. There was the year of the ice storm. That was a fairly early one. Right, yeah. Um, perhaps you remember that, yeah, too. Yeah, no, I do. When the university closed down. Right. And we had to basically improvise the conference in the corners of the Seelbach Hotel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that as well. Your, yeah. your, your conversation about the personal memories that you have and then the 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 memories that that somehow we're not going to say are personal but somehow more appropriate or professionally sort of sanctioned um but the the thing about poetry and your your own personal investment in in it is that poetry goes in there and just wants to blur that fully so that the line that that becomes a very difficult line to draw as we're having a conversation about what it's like to do a conference where poets and critics and people who love books gather together to yeah. be together. Mm-hmm. And I, I was just wondering if you had any any thoughts about that. Going back to your earlier comments about how people get so invested, or at least were invested oh, in uh-huh. literature. And what I remember is reading about Ivor Winters and how Ivor Winters was the kind of poet critic who, if you had a personal, if you disagreed with his poetics, he cut you out of his life. I mean, it, it, it meant that much to him. And do, do yeah. you feel mm-hmm. that that's continued or changed? Um, I feel like that's changed. I mean, there's no accounting, obviously, for the behavior of individuals. But if we think more broadly across the profession, if we think of poetry as you know an international, global, ancient practice continuing into the present, mm-hmm. um, I think there's um, 
and I, I hope this is something that historically the conference has contributed to. Um, I think there's now whatever we mean by the poetry scene. I mean, I, I don't think there's a scene anymore. You know, there are multiple scenes, but there's much more conversation, um, senses of difference, uh, a less. I don't know, about less polemically argued. I'm not even sure if that's the case. Um, I know, it's, it seems to me a less conflictual site than it might have been um, mm-hmm. in some years past. A character like Ivor Winters, who cut people out of his life because they right, disagreed they with him. Formally. Um, are they, right, yeah. Um, of course, Ivor Winters started out as a, a post-imagist avant-gardist right. um, before he got the religion of the 18th century. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, so, I'd, so I'd like to think, you know, in terms of the conference, getting back to that, that the conference has contributed to conversations in poetry and in poetry criticism, but hopefully across all literary fields and cultural studies, theory, film, Mm -hmm. theater increasingly now, um, that it's contributed to boundary-breaking conversations Mm -hmm. rather than being a site for boundary-erecting conversations. Right, yeah, that's well put. Are there... Are, is there advice that you might have for me about how to facilitate that going forward? Um, outreach, outreach, outreach. You know, whatever that looks like in the contemporary moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, when I came first came here, and when you first came here, yeah. You know, there was no Facebook, there was no email, mm-hmm. and there was certainly no. Instagram, Twitter, etc., etc. All the available platforms mm-hmm. there are for publicizing right now. Um, and I know that you, you know, you have the desire and the energy and the ability to make use of those, right. which I think you know will make you a great director. Um, the conference says we've always been praised for being the friendliest conference that people go to. Um, so I think preserving um, that quality, however it manifests itself, um, through things as simple as personal prompt responses to email inquiries. Mm-hmm. Um, but a sense of personal connection with participants is part of what people like about the conference, and it wants them to. En- it makes them want to engage energetically, and it makes them want to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think being willing to experiment with format too. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing I tried to do um, in my years as director was be open to possible events that could happen in the interstices of the formal program. Um, mm-hmm. So lunchtime readings, you know, off-site readings late at night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there particular? readings, particular poems that in your memories of the conference stick out as I remember hearing that for the first time live at the LCLC or at a party afterwards or at the Brown Hotel 
Um, let's see. I think the primary one for me would be Harriet Mullen read in, I believe it was 1995. And I'm pretty sure she gave one of the first public readings um, ever done of the full book of Muse and Drudge, which was about to be published um, that year, later that year. Um, I mean, wonderful reading and a historic event, too. Mm. Yeah. That's that's one particular one that stands out for me. For me, the the one that that stands out that I was involved in was when Frank Bedard came right and, uh-huh. and read mm-hmm. uh, music like dirt and I in the conversation that I had with him I seem to recall he had just written it and never read it publicly before oh well okay. and I didn't know that. Jeff Skinner and Sarah Gorham uh approached him and he agreed to let Sarah Bam publish it as a chapbook afterwards. Right. Uh-huh. And yeah, it was, I remember that. Yeah, it was, mm-hmm. I believe at that time, the only chapbook to ever be nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. So uh, I I remembered that in part because I, I went to dinner with him afterwards and he insisted on paying the bill <laughs> mm-hmm. for myself and everybody else that was at the Mayan Gypsy there. Um, and that gave, that's, that gave me a lot of insight, I thought, into, uh, you know, how polite Bedard is uh-huh. and, and in some ways how different he is than the voices that he often conjures uh, on the page, you know. And so... After I heard Bedart read, it's hard for me to read Bedart and not hear the voice that I heard in Louisville uh, when he read. When he read, so now his voice is in my head. Do you? Right. Uh-huh. Is Harriet Mullen's voice when you read her work now the voice that you heard when she read here at Louisville? Um. To some extent, I mean, it's a, it's a little hard for me to say, Matthew, because I've known Harriet well over the years since then. So I've talked with her a lot and I've heard her read a lot. Um, I'll tell you one, a couple of voices that do stay in my head from readings here, though. Um, I mentioned Susan Howe's reading earlier, um, and that very much stays in my head because I could not have anticipated the variations in pacing and tone and pitch that she brought to that reading. Um, Some very dramatic um, transitions. So that's something, that's a voice that I very much hear in my head Mm. when I go back to her work. Um, And of course, Robert Creeley, is notorious for this you know his when people hear him read his particular handling of line breaks tends to stay in their head um but part of what i remember about his reading um and he gave uh louisville featured his first public reading after he won the bollingen prize 
so that was a kind of like PR coup for us. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Um, there were a number of poems that he'd read three times. And it seemed like he'd he generated this sense that had always stayed with me of being very deeply and intimately in the work and kind of wanting to go back into it again and re-enter it via repeated readings. Um, not exactly so that he could get it right in any sense, um, but more that he could kind of project the affect, the feeling that he wanted to present. Mm. Um, and, that, and that kind of repetition that honored the work and the audience's interest at the same time was mm. fascinating. It was a very powerful reading. I mean, there were people in tears mm-hmm. in that audience, which is not something I've witnessed a lot. Right. Yeah, I gotta say. Yeah. Do you ever feel that there's poetry that it shouldn't be read out loud? That it's poetry that is best heard silently in your head? Um I couldn't name any, honestly. I mean I could perhaps kinds of poetry that it would be hard to read out loud. I mean, asemic writing, mm-hmm. it seems to me, would be impossible to produce in performance. I don't really know what it would sound like. Mm-hmm. Um, certain kinds of concrete poetry would pose, you know, at the very least, challenges of sequencing. Mm-hmm. Um, and because the interest is so much visual more than it is oral. I'm not sure how that would work. But I guess my sense of poetry is that um, pretty much all poets write listening to their inner ear, if not vocalizing as they write. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think think there's there's always an oral component, um, a musical component, Mm-hmm. to what might seem like the most page-bound work. Mm-hmm. Well, you, I appreciate the advice and the, the praise with my handling of mm-hmm. social media, and hopefully I'll get good at it. But I, I brought in, as a kind of surprise to you, perspectives on contemporary literature, which from 1975 mm-hmm. to 1988, this conference produced printed yeah, yeah, uh, we did. And I didn't, mm-hmm. I didn't know that these existed mm-hmm. until I started to do my research. And so here is a uh, a call for papers from that's printed in volume one, number one, 1975, for the fourth annual conference, which was featuring Margaret Church, Paulo Soleri, and Richard Wilbur. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever looked at these these bound proceedings? Uh, I have not looked at them in detail. Uh, I was aware that they existed. Um, in my tenure as uh, 
as director, I would occasionally get reprint requests. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh-huh. Like one of these, you know, sort of Gale publishers or one of these entities that um, publishes kind of encyclopedic retrospective collections of criticism on figure X. They would say, we need, you know, we'd like uh, permission to reprint this particular article from perspectives on contemporary literature from 1979. And I would basically say, I have no clue. (laughs) I can't help you with that. (laughs) We probably don't even have the issue anymore. Um... See if you can get hold of the author. Right. So um, that, that is the last one, which yeah. is right from when you arrived, 1988. Right. And you mm-hmm. can see there that you're right, that every year was themed. That one was literature and the historical process. Mm-hmm. And so we're a conference that stopped doing that. And we're also a conference that stopped doing these themes. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. We're just uh, – we're just submit something – that's that's a, that has a kind of contemporary take on literature and culture, and uh, hopefully we can work something out for you to come here and present and be part of our conference. Yeah. Did you ever say to yourself, you know, we should bring the the printed proceedings back, or is this uh, a, a kind of thing that has had its day? Um, I do think it's had its day, and. Um, I confess I'm probably one of the people who, as a young Turk, came here and said in 1988 that this has had its day. I mean, two of the, uh, I guess we'll call them positions I took on the uh, conference committee in my early years were, number one, that to have a theme was narrowing Mm -hmm. because... It just excluded, by definition, you know, all the people who might want to come who didn't think they had anything to say about this right. particular theme. Right. So if we wanted to expand the conference, open it up, um, I mean, not just increase numbers, but open it up in all sorts of ways, intellectually especially, then we probably ought to do away with the theme. Um, and I think I probably argued, secondly, against continuing the proceedings because um, there were other outlets that, as scholarly outlets, were frankly much stronger Mm -hmm. than this. Um, And uh, it did did not seem that we would be able to get the best work for the proceedings. Um, People would go to the journal Contemporary Literature, um, they would go to 20th century literature. Um, they would go to the Journal of Modern Literature. So there were plenty of other outlets. Mm-hmm. Um, so perspectives on contemporary literature seemed like a site that um, was going to... We risked drawing what people couldn't place anywhere else. Right, yeah. Um, I agree with you. I do think that themed conferences, they remind me of uh, contests that were popular when I was a teenager uh, that were impromptu speaking contests. And you had to p- 
pick a phrase from a hat that you didn't know what it was and you had to read that out loud and then talk extemporaneously for two minutes and there was a winner of the contest and the, uh-huh. the theme <laughs> is like that it's just like you have something you want to say so you think about some way to connect it to the theme and why you know why just come and and share with us this thing that is compelling that is inside you that you that you have to get out right yeah. Um, um, so yeah, I do agree with you. And one, yeah, and one thing I've found over the years here, and I'm sure you've had this um, conference experience in your own professional life in all sorts of contexts, where um, you'll end up with a panel that, on the surface, looks kind of incoherent. Um, there may be a buried thread that we, as the organizers, intuitive was there and that's why we put these papers together but they don't look like they go together and then people will go to the panel and they and speakers will say oh that was great you know because it turned out that you know person a really anticipated person b effectively and person c's paper turned out to connect with the other two in this this and this way um so i like that quality of serendipity Mm -hmm. that um, what we might call an open call brings. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about, you started off with a memory in a white castle and people uh, who are regularly attend our conference, many of them know very know you very well and know your house very well because there tends to be a party at your house. Right. Uh-huh. Do, do you yeah, have... that's been a, a, a great tradition that Lisa, my wife and I have enjoyed a lot over the years do you have any memories i have some strong memories i've uh, poems have been read there an interesting conversation has been had there Mm -hmm. what for you as the host of this grand party what stands out as memories for you um let's see certainly some of the late night readings i mean as you know um Poetry readings uh, were not always part of what we did at the party. And then, um, I'm not even sure, maybe it was me who had the idea to do that, or maybe some participants suggested it. I don't even recall the germ of the idea. But it certainly seemed to me like, wow, boy, we have all these interesting writers together in one place. And they're typically people who are very rarely in the same place together. You know, they're different generations. um, They're different kinds of writers. But what if we do something on the model of um, something that was going on then, the MLA off-site reading, where some kind of countercultural institution in the MLA city would host a big reading for whoever wanted to participate. And it was alphabetical order. Everybody got... X number of minutes, mm-hmm. um, and so, so so some of those have been very memorable for yeah. me. Um, our keynote speakers nearly always, you know, generously participated. I mean, if they came to the party, they would typically do the reading. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that was always a fun bonus. Right. Um, but really, you know, everyone from graduate students to, you know, award-winning writers like Nathaniel Mackey Mm -hmm. on the same bill. Right. And that was great fun, you know, and a 
a conversation starter. Right. Right. You know, help people connect. I liked the kind of democratic process of it. Right. Yeah, I, I, never having read there, but having listened to quite a few of them, I, what I enjoyed about it is that the, the house party context of it uh, created a different sort of poetry experience than mm-hmm. the formal, you know, sort of all tuxedoed out kind of word having a formal poetry reading um, and and so the the vibe of the experience for me is much more sort of in tune with what I like about art generally right and and I don't know if you know this I think it will interest you as part of your uh, research on the conference a lot of those readings are archived on Penn Sound really yeah the, the University of uh, Pennsylvania um, reading archive because uh, a number of them were recorded by uh, one of our regular participants and a close friend Alden Nielsen Uh Um, and then Alden would uh, simply put them on the Penn Sound site I'm not sure how many there are but there's some thank you for the recommendation Mm -hmm. so Uh, and then generally you know the other thing about the party was just like Lisa and I liked the idea of just bringing a whole bunch of people um, whose interests had probably a sort of Venn diagram relationship (laughs) with each other um, together in the same space to drink and hang out and talk. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a great opportunity for a lot of conference participants to both meet other participants who they had not met, um, meet featured speakers, and just you know, like have a drink with them in an informal way. Yeah. So, do you plan on continuing this tradition, or do I need to start getting my house ready for these house parties? Oh uh, boy, <laughs> I can't answer that question. <laughs> All right. So that uh, that is point. a key reason for too people mu- to listen. Too much going on in life. <laughs> right. <laughs> um. Any any last words of advice for me? Um, no, no. <laughs> Let me ask you one last. I feel question. like I should have some, but you know, I think you'll. You know, we've talked a lot about the conference and what I feel like has made it something people want to return to. Um, we don't know how people's feelings about conferences are going to change in the post-COVID world. Um, we don't know about limitations on travel, limitations on funding, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of unknowns. Right. It is true that we may be exiting the golden age of conferences, uh, at least in-person conferences. It certainly makes me think a yeah. lot about affect. You know, as a Shakespeare scholar, as somebody who teaches a lot of drama, the notion that well, when you just do it online, it's, you, you know, you guys in the humanities, you lose nothing. It's just online. We should just put it all online and take away your classroom space and your budgets and everything. And as somebody who's teaching physical theater, where it, you realize how silly an argument that is right. because mm-hmm. the affect of people being in a room together 
Totally is, agree. You know, yeah. you, you can't that whatever happens, it, it's not some real easy translation of physical affect just goes online right. and it's like this, you know. Yeah, I think there's a lot about um, the way the conference has been conducted over the years, meaning over the decades, including, you know, well before I was director. Um, a lot that really can't be replicated in the digital environments, yeah. environment. Um, conversation, face-to-face interaction, um, the unpredictable social connections that happen, um, experiencing live performance, um, intellectual back and forth, you know, all that seems very hard to replicate online. Um, And it's not, and I think what is key for thinking about the conference as uh, an intellectual enterprise is that it's very easy for um, people, people meaning administrators and those in control of funding, um, it's easy to underestimate how much all those sorts of interactions actually contribute to scholarly work. Collaborative projects get formed out of um, conversations and conference interactions. You know, book projects get formed out of them. Book series get formed out of them. Collaborative articles get written out of them. Um, all that scholarly output you know, potentially gets lost if you lose the face-to-face conversation. Mm-hmm. I agree. So hopefully uh, 2022 will be a restart of something that will continue on in the future and will get a sustaining and developing of this tradition. Right, yeah, we don't know. As David Antin, one of our keynote speakers years back, writes in one of his essays, well, the thing about the present is that it's open on its forward side. (laughs) By which he meant you don't know what the hell is going to happen. Right. Well, thanks so much, Alan, for coming in today and talking to me about the conference. Thank you for inviting me, Matthew. I've really enjoyed the conversation and uh, look forward to working with you on it. Mm -hmm.